right, the foghorn means it is time for the Cavish Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, what's the latest on the Chinese Navy? What are they up to? What are they producing? We hear from a great China analyst to fill us in on new developments, Tom Shugart. But first, a look at this week's naval news. The carrier USS Gerald R. Ford carried out a four-day visit to Portsmouth, England, between November 14 and 18. The visit attracted widespread interest throughout the region. Ford was one of five NATO carriers underway in European waters during the week. The USS George H.W. Bush is in the Mediterranean Sea, where the French Charles de Gaulle and Italian Cavour are also operating, and the British carrier Queen Elizabeth is in the North Sea. The U.S. Central Command and Israeli officials are blaming Iran for an aerial drone attack November 15th on the oil tanker Pacific Zircon in the Gulf of Oman. The drone, apparently one of the Shahed series, hit the ship's hull but caused only minor damage. The Shahed is similar to UAVs being sold to Russia by Iran. The attack seems to be one of a series of similar attacks against Eastern Pacific Shipping, a company owned by Israeli billionaire Idan Ofor. The Russian Pacific Fleet's lone cruiser Varyag and destroyer Admiral Trebutz returned to Vladivostok about November 17, nearly 11 months after leaving for a deployment to the Mediterranean Sea, where Varyag was one of three cruisers positioned in February for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Of course, Moscow was sunk in the Black Sea, while the other cruiser, Marshal Ustinov, returned to its northern fleet base around early September. Russian naval activities in the Mediterranean and Black Sea continue at a relatively low rate. The Chinese Navy hospital ship Daishandao, or Peace Ark, arrived in Indonesia November 14th on a goodwill mission. Similarly, the U.S. Navy hospital ship Comfort is on continuing promise, a cruise in Central America and the Caribbean. She arrived in Colombia on November 12th. Britain made two major naval construction announcements during the week. A 4.2 billion pound order for five more Type 26 frigates was awarded November 15th to BAE Systems Marine Maritime, completing orders for a planned eight ships of the new city-class frigate. And on November 16th, the Ministry of Defense chose one of four competing teams to build the Royal Navy's new fleet support ships. The consortium of BMT, Harlan & Wolf, and Navantia UK won a £1.6 billion contract to build the three new supply ships. Final assembly will be at Harlan & Wolf, Belfast, the famous shipyard which more than a century ago built the passenger liner Titanic and her sister ships. And on November 16th, the U.S. Coast Guard heavy icebreaker Polar Star left Seattle, Washington to begin its annual Operation Deep Freeze deployment to Antarctica, where the ship will cut a navigable channel to resupply the U.S. research facility McMurdo Station. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. All right. Well, as we all know, there have been a lot of developments recently with China. And here to help us sort through with it is Tom Sugar a strategic consultant with Archer Strategic Consulting and an adjunct senior fellow at the Washington-based CNAS Center for a New American Security. Tom is a retired U.S. Navy captain and submariner who commanded the attack submarine USS Olympia, among other accomplishments. Welcome back to the podcast, Tom. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here with uh, both of you, Chris's, again. Well, thanks for being here. You uh, you always have a good eye for uh, things that are going on in China and an eye for significant developments that maybe other people should keep an eye on. What What is catching your eye recently? 
Well, some things that I've picked out recently, and you know, I, I, t- I try to tend to focus on um, hard data points that I can see, new, new things, uh, whether it's image from imagery or social media, lots of stuff that comes come, you see up in open source intelligence. Uh, I like to look for that kind of stuff, uh, not so much just what do their documents say and you know what are the geopolitics looking like right now because there's just a lot of opinion that that you know can go lots of different directions on that. So some of the key data points that I've I've seen this year that I think were interesting are first um, definite a definite restart of warship production uh, in China. So you know after they built at this incredible rate over the last few years, they kind of seem to take a bit of a pause. Uh, for a year or so, and I, I I don't know if maybe it was they were husbanding resources to support the carrier construction or what, uh, but we finally are starting to see now evidence of restart of um, significant scale production of Chinese warships of all flavors uh, at multiple shipyards. So we've got uh, five, count them, five type uh, 52 destroyers, kind of the equivalent of an Arleigh Burke, under construction in a single dry dock in Dalian right now. Right. Um, you know, that, that started earlier, earlier this year. Uh, they tend to move them out pretty quickly. So I, I imagine it'll be launched within a year or so. Um, we've got uh, Type 54A frigates under production. I spotted one the other day uh, at the Hudong shipyard in Shanghai. Uh, I spotted a couple of them. Um, so in addition to the ones they're building for Pakistan, they've also got those under construction at, at two of their different shipyards. They've already built 30 of them. So it's just interesting when we see you know, we in the U.S. Navy are, hey, it wouldn't be great if we had this Constellation class frigate. Oh, that's super. We'll have one by 26 or so. Meantime, China's built another dozen or so of their Type 54. So they just have this ability to do things at scale that's really impressive. So so we're seeing that production restarted. Uh, additionally, uh, Chinese nuclear submarine production was kind of in hiatus for a while. Uh, and they just finished building this huge new uh, nuclear submarine uh, production facility up on Hulubao. And we saw this summer the first uh, unit roll out of there. Looks like it's probably a modified Shang class, you know, existing Type 93 class uh, with maybe some vertical launch tubes. But it'll be really interesting to watch that and see if that uh, production continues because we've kind of been waiting to see what's going to come out of those, those facilities. So, so definitely um, lots, lots of action starting to happen again in the, in, in the Chinese ship production. And they just have an ability to scale up quickly that's just unmatched at this point. Um, also this year, uh, you know, we've seen uh, anybody who follows me and what I talk about knows I'm very interested in uh, China's ability to leverage its absolutely world-class civilian uh, merchant fleets in order to supplement their sea lift uh, for the for potential use in a cross-strait invasion. I find this, you know, so interesting, be, mainly because there are just a lot of folks out there, myself included, in the past that kind of looked at China and thought, well, you know, no matter how how scary the stuff they build is. They just don't have enough amphibs to be able to invade Taiwan. So, you know, all, all things being equal, it's going to take time. You know, we're, we're going to see it coming from a long way off. And they just they just can't do it right now. Uh, but but I've as I've been following, um, quite frankly, following in the footsteps of works, great work from folks like Connor Kennedy uh, and Lonnie Henley and Mike Dom at uh, the Naval War College China Maritime Studies Institute. Um, I've done I've really focused on scale and what I've been just really impressed by this year. Um, is the scale of the sea lift capacity it looks like they could bring to bear using the, again, world-class um, civilian shipping, and in particular, their roll-on, roll-off shipping, which is just really well-suited uh, for uh, to, you know transporting vehicles from one place to another, which would be kind of like what you're doing going across the Taiwan Strait. So, um, so, <laughs> so we saw we saw 
exercises, uh, practicing that at greater scale than we've ever seen them before, not, not by order of magnitude or anything, but greater scale than we've seen them before this summer. So that, that's another data point that tells me that they are continuing to work on this in earnest uh, and are continuing to increase the, the scale at which they can do so. Uh, most recently, some interesting data points for us were from the, the for me, for, were from the uh, Zhuhai Air Show. Um, lots of great uh, social media coverage of uh, what's been going on there. I mean, it's really good OSN um, that people have been pulling. Um, I don't know what we do without Twitter, quite frankly, for, for those of us yep. uh, in this community. I mean, I, I, it wasn't for Twitter. Like, I just, it seems like the lights would go out in terms of, you know, having that, that day-to-day uh, scan of, of what's out there. I mean, if all we were relying on was, you know, stale articles written in journals, um, it just wouldn't be quite the same. So lots of new data points uh, from that air show. One was um, what is what it seemed to be called the YJ-21 anti-ship ballistic missile. This is an air-launched anti-ship ballistic missile mark that was brought in on their H-6K bombers. So that's a significant development to me, not so much because the weapon itself is... I mean, it's exotic by, by, by five years ago standards, it would be pretty exotic. It isn't quite so exotic anymore uh, with all the crazy missiles that the Chinese have been rolling out in recent years. But uh, what's interesting to me is that they can put it on a pretty vanilla airplane, the H-6K. You know, we, we've already seen the end model of the H-6 recently, which which carried an anti-ship ballistic missile. But there's very small numbers of those of those those uh, aircraft that carried a huge missile. Um we're seeing, the, you know, this again. The, the air show this week we saw just a plain, plain Jane H6K with two of them strapped underneath the wings. Um, so that that is going to increase the, the aperture of the threat we could see. Because you know, again, we don't know these anti-ballistic missiles are again used, can be used for carriers because they be used on destroyers. We certainly have seen destroyer targets uh, in the desert in China. So just another another weapon to worry about. Um, we also saw a new air-launched cruise missile look pretty stealthy. Um, this was a pretty slick looking missile. Definitely was not a, you know, a lot of Chinese missiles have been derivatives of Russian stuff in the past. The Russians don't have anything like this that I've seen. Um, so it looks like a pretty stealthy, probably long range, electro optical infrared sensors. So probably image recognition going on. Not sure what it's for, if it's anti-ship for the Navy to worry about, or if it's a land attack. Although quite frankly, we should, all, we should always remember that land attack capabilities are, we need to worry about that too, because that's what they're going to come after is taking down the shore facilities that support our forces in the Western Pacific. So that was another weapon uh, that was interesting. Um, we saw a PL-17 ultra long range anti-air missile. So this is a 400 kilometer range anti-air missile, really extraordinary capability um, that we saw uh, not demoed, but carried around and announced to the world uh, at Zhuhai. That matters for our Navy in the sense that that could be a weapon that could be used against our Hawkeye E2Ds uh, our AW aircraft, and also potentially, I could see it maybe being used against P8s at long range. Um, so, you know, that, that's something that could be uh, something to worry about uh, for our aircraft and theater is if they didn't already have enough to worry about from uh, Chinese missiles at our, at our airfields and whatnot. Uh, we also, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> we also saw an air refuelable uh, KJ500 uh, AEW aircraft. So this is their turboprop AWACS. Um, why does it matter to the you know, to folks in the naval community that this that they they now have an air refuelable version? Well, that that would be look to me like something they intend to have much longer range, and that I would imagine that might be useful for going way out over water. Um, so we can potentially see that capability of uh, airborne early warning uh, projected from the land well out over sea um, by that air refueling refuel capability. So 
those are some of the kind of key data points I've seen the last few months. Again, you know, Jack, the return of large-scale warship production, uh, continued ramping up of uh, civilian vessel enabled amphibious exercises, and then some lots of interesting munitions uh, at the recent Zuhai Air Show. I want to kind of build on some of the things that you talked about and then relate them to some of the comments that General Milley made yesterday in a press conference with uh, the Secretary of Defense. They largely talked about Ukraine and what was going on with Russia and Ukraine and, you know, the conflict in Europe. But towards the end of the press conference, the chairman was asked about China. And I'm quoting right now, the U.S. military is without question, despite whatever criticisms people have, the U.S. military is the most lethal warfighting machine on earth, bar none. The U.S. military is number one and we intend to stay number one. Then he goes on to talk about, you know, why we have to stay number one and um, the importance of that on, on deterrence. Some of that is to be expected, right? I mean, some of that China is the pacing threat. Their their goal is to catch us and and in their view surpass us. But does the does the chairman have a point that hey, look, when you're number one, everybody's gonna gonna gun for you, and you know that's to be expected? Um, or are are we in real trouble when it when it comes to the types of things that you you pointed out um, on this show and when we had John before and you, you know and, and others in the space have been talking about. How worried should we be about our relative advantage? Well, I mean, I think I think the chairman's not wrong in the sense that, you know, we are the number one, we're the most lethal military, probably will be for quite some time. We have lots of allies and that's all great. Um, but what we have to keep in mind, that relative balance of capability, what matters is what is that's not going to be true geographically, you know, in every in every every area of geography. It's not going to be clued, not necessarily true temporally. Um, so what that means is, yeah, we're the we are the world's number one military, but but that doesn't mean that we're going to necessarily be able to do everything we want to do in every place uh, with respect. And what matters that how that matters is the respect to our defense objectives, right? We have pretty for for a nation that's you know six thousand miles from China, we have some pretty forward leaning defense objectives to be able to defend and protect allies that are right on China's doorstep. China doesn't have to be our equal in order to be able to make that uh, those objectives really hard to meet. In the sense that, I mean, imagine if China had, you know, like they had a defense objective to be able to maintain the sovereignty and defend Cuba from us. I mean, like, or, or uh, you know, Mexico or somebody. I mean, that that would be, they don't have to be, they wouldn't have to be, they have to be far beyond our equals in order to achieve objectives like that. So, um, you know, so I think that that, I think the general's not wrong in terms of overall capability, but we've got to remember that a, a nation if China is equal to us at sea, for example, that's an equal is not somebody that we are able to fight in the Western Pacific. That's somebody we're fighting in the Central Pacific. And being pushed back that far by somebody who's our peers is, is not a place we can be and still, again, still be able to meet the defense objectives we've laid down for ourselves, like maintaining the, the safety and vital interests of nations like Korea, Japan, and of course, the ability per the Taiwan Relations Act to defend Taiwan, which is right on China's doorstep. So so there has to be an overmatch that's maybe more than uh, even uh, General Milley uh, is pointing out in order to do that. So from a historical point of view, you know, there, I mean, people are always trying to draw parallels between uh, between what's going on now and things that have gone on in the past, at least Navy to Navy, um, you know, before World War II, although our, uh, U.S. Navy planners have been working for 40 years on the assumption that Japan and the United States would go to war. 
there, there was an underappreciation of the abilities of the Japanese Navy. And for, for at least most of the first year of the war, um, the U.S. Navy was being constantly surprised. These guys were, were actually good. And they were better than us in many ways in terms of massing carriers to get together, uh, night fighting, um, their, their torpedoes, the range of their torpedoes. All this was a, was a, was a major surprise. Um, there's also the, the, the other side of things where people overestimate at the, the, the enemy. Um, when the Germans were building up their fleet before World War I, the, first, the early part of the 20th century, uh, they, the, the Royal Navy was the, was the preeminent Navy of the, of the time. And the Germans were pretty much in awe of the, of, of the Brits. They never caught up to them in terms of quantity, but they surpassed them in, in, in many ways in, in quality. But they didn't have quite the faith in their systems against the British. They were, they were in essence, psyched out. Um, you kind of wonder what's going on now. Uh, you know, Admiral, Admiral Milley, not Admiral Milley, General Milley um, talked the other day about the Chinese and said, you know, well, you know, they, they're training, they're training hard and, and we're watching that, but they haven't actually fought, fought a war, fought in combat since 1979 when they fought the Vietnamese, whereas the U.S. Is, is, uh, has been in a state of almost constant war, um, certainly since 9-11. And, uh, you know, I mean, what, what what do you make of the on on both sides the U.S. and the Chinese? The Chinese are, seem to be incredibly confident. They think they can take us. Um, that's dangerous if unless we can dissuade them of that. Um, we are up there, you know, we're number one. We're number one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And waving the flag, but waving the flag doesn't make you number one. What's your what's your sense of that on both sides, from the Chinese viewpoint, from the American viewpoint? about how they're viewing each other as, as potential opponents? Yeah, so, so I, I think on that question of, um, you know, who, who has how much experience and how much does it matter? I think that as with any, you know, assessment worth discussing, there's gonna be elements of truth uh, on both sides of the ledger. So with the, I, I do hear a lot the idea that, well, they haven't fought anybody since the, they fought the Vietnamese in 1979 and we've been involved in constant warfare uh, since you know 2001, certainly, um, I just don't think that that when it comes to the kind of warfare that we're talking about for a Western Pacific campaign, which is going to be largely maritime, it's going to be probably pretty pretty uh, sporty uh, and high end. We haven't done anything like that since I would say that I mean the last really contested naval battle that we fought with a peer-ish competitor was the Battle of Leyte Gulf in 1944. Um, there's nothing we've really done since then that. Uh, is, is comparable. So and, and quite frankly, I think that a lot of the experience that we've gained over that the US military has gained conducting these, you know, counterterrorism or counterinsurgency operations over the last 20 years against in extremely permissive environments, against very technolo technologically um, uh, limited opponents, I, I find very little utility in those in terms of uh, our ability, what that, that meaning anything useful in terms of uh, our ability to win a high-end naval fight. And quite frankly, some of it may be of negative utility. We may have learned lessons that are worse than worse than having not fought at all against opponents like that, rather than having just been practicing against uh, what you consider to be a high-end opponent. So so I just don't buy the idea that that the China China's lack of um, fighting anybody kinetically matters that much for the fights that would really matter uh, for 
for a high-end fight in the Western Pacific. Uh, now, that being said, it does matter that we have, you know, more experience operating at sea for long periods of time, further from home, in terms of power projection. That that does matter. I mean, it, it, you know, anybody who's spent enough time at sea operating knows that, like, even, you know, going to war, like, 80% of the, for naval forces, 80% of the job is just getting there and staying out there. Um, but again, this is where I would look at what the Chinese do and say, they're not, they're not like, you know, second rate nations whose ships don't ever go out, they do go to sea and they stay out for long periods of time. They have sent task forces, you know, through the through the uh, Bering Strait, they've sent them all the way to the Baltic, they've sent them across the Pacific. Um, they operate at sea for long periods of time. And, you know, anybody that can go out on a submarine, for example, and stay out for 80, 90 days, that's that's pro level stuff. So uh, and that and that to some degree is, is a lot of what it takes to get there. So um, so they've de clearly demonstrated the ability to go out and stay out. Uh, so, so again, while, while I think that our, our ability to operate and project force, project power, um, there is some ex experiential benefit there that we may have, but I think it maybe is sometimes oversold. So one of the other aspect is, um, their cooperation with the Russians. So we are, we have been on a major effort for some time now and continuing to show our partnerships in action. So out in the Pacific, we're, we're forever doing great big photo exes, photo exercises when we do a, do a, an exercise with all of our allies. And, you know, you try to get not just uh, four nations, but, you know, seven, eight, nine nations represented in the same shot. We do the same thing in, the, in uh, Europe and other sense. The Chinese don't have that many allies. Their biggest ally that can at least even show up for a photo op is pretty much the Russians. But uh, from what, you know, obviously the Russians have impressed no one uh, with their military prowess this year. And uh, we're hearing stories about how the, the Chinese, of course, they see the same thing. And uh, what's your assessment of the relationship right now between the Chinese and Russian militaries? When I look at the Russian and Chinese militaries, I mean, there's, there's definitely some synergies there. Um, but I think, but I think it's a pretty loose relationship. And uh, I don't think the, so. I don't think the tie-ins are that close at the operational level. Uh, I don't see, for example, like when I, when I look at the challenge we face in the Pacific, the idea of them combining with the Russian Pacific fleet and making it that much harder for us. I mean, it's it would be worse than it would be otherwise, but I don't see it as uh, determinative. Um, if I had to look for one area where I'd be worried about uh, Chinese-Russian uh, cooperation, it would be in submarine silencing, probably. You know, the the, the Chinese have scale. They have huge production facilities. The one thing they haven't been able to do is build quiet nuclear submarines. That's the one real vulnerability that the Chinese have had in the undersea. They've got pretty quiet uh, diesel submarines or air-independent propulsion submarines, but their nukes are just loud. Everybody knows it. Um, it you know, the Russians have, they're not quite as good as ours, but they definitely have some pretty quiet submarines out there. And if they could, if the Chinese could just get to like late Cold War levels of uh, Soviet quieting, that would make our lives a lot harder than it would be, than it has been, than it would be otherwise. So. So that's an area of cooperation I do worry about. And Tom, before we go, because um, we're almost out of time, but would love to get your take on what to watch for as we head into 2023. So, uh, you know, one thing I think will be interesting is to see, you know, with all the hoopla around uh, China's launching and of their uh, first full-size uh, catapult-equipped carrier, the Type 003, it'll be interesting to watch to see if they start building another one. Because um, that'll, that'll sort of tell us, uh, you know, what, what the rate of increase will be of that capability. Can so I, I'm I, looking out for can, that. Can I interrupt you real quick? 
Yeah. First, first catapult launched aircraft carrier, aircraft carrier with catapults. Those are EMOS catapults. Are they even testing their EMOS? Uh, we it's hard to say the they've kept those catapults covered with um, like these right. sheds over them. So uh, there's nothing available for us to see really in open source. But we haven't point. seen anything of them of them testing on a land based facility, have we? I mean, you think about all the troubles that we've had with emails over the years. It's and it's still a system that's being perfected, um, and they're they're jumping right to it. They've 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 built the ship. They have no other way to launch their their fixed wing aircraft. It's yeah, I mean, they, they've had a, we've seen a number of uh, shore facilities that have been built uh, to prepare for a carrier production, like painted out flight decks and fake superstructures. I don't recall if we've seen an EMOS uh, shore testing rig, but I'd be surprised if it's not out there somewhere. Okay. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go, go on. Uh, so other things to look for in 2023, uh, you know, you, you heard me beat the drum on, um, on the RORO enabled, uh, civilian enabled, uh, amphibious exercises. I'll be looking to see how big those become in the future. You know, there's been plenty of discussion out there in the Twitterverse and elsewhere about 2027, you know, when, when can the Chinese invade? Could it be the next few years, yada, yada, yada. I mean, I think it's fair to say that we would expect to see larger scale rehearsals, uh, and more, more joint practicing. Uh, before they do that. So it'll be interesting to see if we start to see more joint elements and again, bigger scale in those exercises, because that would, that would point to us that maybe that day is coming closer. Um, it'll be interesting to see in 23 if we have more deployments of forces to the China South China Sea artificial island bases. You know, we had some great photos recently uh, taken by a very brave Filipino journalist uh, of some really high resolution photos of uh, uh, some of those Chinese island bases. And we saw for example, an aircraft in a hangar out there. So, so does that airplane live there now? Is there are there aircraft permanently de deployed out there? We also saw we also saw a uh, AEW aircraft uh, on the runway there, and this wasn't a huge kind of thing. Hey, let's go take a picture of this. It was just there. So, so maybe they're there more often. So it'll be interesting to see. You know, they've got a lot of empty hangars out there. When do they finally get around to um, uh, to deploying aircraft and uh, military forces in lar at larger scale to those islands? Maybe after this 20th party, party Congress, they get a little more brave about that sort of thing. Um, we're all, all, those of us who watch China really closely are on kind of tenterhooks about the 2022 China Military Power Report. Um, I expect that'll come out uh, pretty soon. It's usually a gold mine of open source intelligence. I'll be watching to see whether the explosive growth in uh, China's intermediate range and medium range ballistic missiles, whether it levels off or not. Because um, it's really been quite something to watch. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if that levels off, if they finally decide they've got enough to make it work, whatever they need to do. We also interested to see them finish out uh, building these huge ICBM fields that they built, uh, and whether they start building out the warhead development to fill those up with missiles. That matters to us, folks in the Navy, because those ICBMs matter for us because that's their nuclear backstop to large-scale conventional action. Um, so that matters. And then finally, I'm interested to see uh, if we have more SSN and potentially SSBN production from that new large nuclear submarine production facility at Huludao. We've seen one, one submarine come out of there. Do we see more? Do they, are they the same flavor or do they start to build a new Type 95, 96 we've been waiting to see for years? So those are the kind of things I'm looking for in 2023. Well, thanks, Tom. We could uh, carry this discussion on for hours. Um, you, you've given uh, Chris and I and our audience a lot to uh, take note of and, and to think about. We've been talking to Tom Shugart. Tom, thanks again for joining us. We look forward to having you uh, back on uh, soon uh, to continue the discussion. My pleasure to talk to you both. Thanks, Tom. Now hear this. Now hear this.
All right, you know what that means. It's time for Squawk Box. And this week, Mr. Cavus talks about the importance of learning from history. Thanks, Chris. 80 years ago this month, in mid-November 1942, the Japanese and American navies met in battle on three consecutive nights in what became known as the Naval Battle of Guadalcanal. From the evening of November 12th to the morning of November 15th, warships engaged in a nightly slugfest during which so many ships were sunk that the waters off Guadalcanal became known as Iron Bottom Sound, a name that persists today in charts and maps of the Solomon Islands. When it was over, two Japanese battleships, a heavy cruiser, three destroyers, and a number of troop transports had been sunk. The U.S. Navy lost two light cruisers and seven destroyers. A large number of ships on both sides survived, but with very heavy damage. More than 1,900 Japanese sailors died along with several thousand troops killed when their transports were sunk. More than 1,700 American sailors died, including the famous Sullivan brothers. The battle for Guadalcanal itself would continue for another three months, but the issue was essentially over. A more superior Japanese force that had numerous advantages was defeated at great cost by Americans on land, sea, and in the air, largely through tenacity and grit. The Chinese have studied the Guadalcanal campaign quite intensively. In several articles, they've taken note that while both the Japanese and Americans took extensive losses, the Japanese were never able to replace the ships, planes, and personnel lost in the campaign, while American losses were quickly replenished by new forces already in the pipeline. The American arsenal continued to grow, and Japanese losses, which began in June 1942 at the Battle of Midway, simply piled up. That's a greatly simplified summation of the campaign, but it's lessons like that that are giving the Chinese confidence that whatever their losses in a potential conflict, they'd be able to continue fighting, while the U.S., which ironically is now the combatant unable to quickly find replacements, will lose in any kind of protracted battle. In many ways, the Chinese see themselves as the Americans in World War II, and today's American military arguably looks like the Japanese of that conflict. Those who have paid attention to these lessons of history know them quite well. But today in America, too many people have forgotten these lessons or never studied them in the first place. The past is prologue, so wrote Shakespeare in about 1610 in his play, The Tempest. The Chinese are studying our past intently. Let's hope more people here in the U.S. do the same. Thanks, Chris. A great point that I hope people pay close attention to. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. And bye-bye. Hey.